I'm Yonit Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. And I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. And we are Unholy, two Jews on the news from Kesha Podcasts. Hi, Jonathan. Hello, Yonit. How are you doing? I'm okay. On a scale from uh, of uh, one to two nil to England over Germany, how uh, happy are you? Very nicely done, I must <laughs> say. I am, I have a spring in my step, as does every uh, English or England fan, uh, partly because this is such a rare thing. I don't need to reveal my age, but if I tell you that England had never beaten Germany in a uh, competitive tournament in my lifetime. Wow. Um, that tells you how long this was. 55 years of hurt, <laughs> and it was finally reversed at Wembley Stadium, and it was an amazing thing, just because people of my age have got used to, inured to, the idea that England just loses to Germany, and yet we have turned it around. And, of course, everyone now here thinks that England are going to go all the way and win this tournament, even if England doesn't do that. Just this yeah. memory will be a cherished one. At least in the important things you win. Um, let's uh, <laughs> say that, uh, you know, it's kind of that season we're hoping that news kind of winds down a little bit. We are, you we know, do with that. COVID is on the rise, et cetera, here and where you are. But yep. we thought it might be a good opportunity since we're all going to be doing one thing this summer, and that's binging on television, let's be honest. We thought this would be a great opportunity to finally have our Israeli television special on Unholy and talk in depth about the success, um, actually breathtaking success of Israeli television around the world, and especially in the US. And special episode means special guest, and very special in this case. Joining us is Richard Plepler, head of Eden Productions, former chairman and CEO of HBO. Hi, Richard. Thank you so much for being with us today. It's a great pleasure, Nate. Thank you and Jonathan for inviting me. Uh, I'm delighted to be with you. You know, you are obviously the man behind the success of HBO in the golden age of television. Such a long list. We can't name it. Every, that, everything. That's, like, that, that's a very grandiose compliment, which, you know, <laughs> maybe maybe my wife and daughter would accept. But there's a lot of people <laughs> responsible for that. I'm just one of them. But it's quite um, a list. It's quite a list, Richard. I mean, these are the big, big shows of TV and you know, you're being modest about your role in them. But we're fascinated to know about TV and particularly this strange thing that's happened. And I'd love to hear what your vantage point on this is. This strange thing that has happened where Israeli TV is suddenly, you know, hot in in the industry and with audiences around the world. And you played a role in the very, very start of that with this show. Perhaps it was the first Israeli export. And we're talking about in treatment. Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting. I actually was was not yet co-president even, let alone CEO, when in-treatment made its way uh, in, into our doors. But I did have proudly uh, a seat at the executive table, if you will. And I can remember, uh, because it was not a traditional show, it was a very quiet show, even with the breathtaking talent behind it, importantly, Gabriel Byrne and Haggai himself, who, who was the genius uh, who created and invented the concept. But I remember vividly, and I was just executive vice president uh, of HBO then, and, and, and all I had really was the, the power of, of suasion. You know, I didn't have the authority at that time to greenlight anything. And I remember watching the first couple of shows mesmerized by its quiet power. And if HBO defined itself, as I, as I think certainly during my time, we would always say 
We want to be differentiated. We want to be looking to do things that other people aren't doing. We want to empower unique voices with unique points of view. And we want to take those risks. In Treatment was a quintessential example of that thesis, of that raison d'etre, if you will. Uh, I remember watching it. I remember picking up the phone and, and calling my then boss, Chris Albrecht, who was the, the CEO of the company, and saying, I think this is breathtaking. And we had no idea uh, that, it would, that it would turn into such a cultural conversation. We had no idea that it would attract the kind uh, of media uh, adulation that it did. We just knew that we had Haggai, we had a brilliant cast, we had a, a, a stunning idea, and of course it was executed. My, my produced, uh, you know, my dear friend Steve Levinson was one of the first things he brought to us at HBO. And I think it was quintessentially uh, an HBO show and went on, of course, uh, to win awards and acclaim. But it does punctuate an interesting point about the thinking that I think informed a lot of years together with the team and many of um, the, the great creative talent at, at HBO is still there. My, my Casey Blois, my friend who's head of programming, who's an absolute genius and, and his team, we were listening for original voices. And that's what we were always listening for. And Haggai was uh, the personification of that. And um, of course, it, it went on to do many extraordinary things, not just at HBO, but elsewhere. And I think he really uh, showed everybody what was possible from the Israeli creative community and, and opened the doors for an enormous amount of talent that uh, subsequently has come into popular culture, not only in the United States, but around the world. Yeah, this is, of course, Chagai Levy, the, the creator of, of what Betipul, as it was called in, in yeah. Israel, and uh, in treatment. You know, I, I spoke to uh, your friend uh, Rick Rosen, who said, and he had yeah. this quote that I like, he said, in treatment begets homeland, homeland begets Fauda. In other words, in treatment opened the door, as you said, and then it just was a snowball ever since. You know, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a, 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 an interesting, I've never actually told this story, absolutely true story about Fauda. I was speaking, I believe the year was 2014, we can check it, at, uh, the, at the TV festival in Israel. And I was on a panel with uh, Avi Nir, who's the, 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 the chairman of Kashet. And on the screen was the trailer of Fauda. Now I'm going to tell on myself here to show uh, the mistake. So I watched the trailer mesmerized and came off the stage and said, we have to have that. Can we adapt that? Uh, can we get the format rights to that? And um, it became clear, of course, that it was, you know, particularly idiomatic for obvious reasons. And that, you know, yes, we could probably do a deal for the show, but of course it would be in Hebrew. And foolishly, foolishly, and the rest is history, I think we all gathered and said, oh, well, you know, it's in Hebrew, so what can we do? Uh, maybe we'll figure out after Fauda has aired if we can come back and adapt the format rights. And we were, of course, insane. And as the international market uh, began to version, uh, Netflix very shrewdly began to buy foreign shows in their original language and Fauda became Fauda. But um, I wish to report, just to give myself a tiny bit of ex post facto's credit, I did say to myself that day, seeing the trailer, holy shit, uh, this is going to be something. And there you go. 
rest do you, think, do you think, I mean, this thing about language is so interesting because people are now open to foreign language, foreign TV. Oh, yeah. Uh, and yeah. do you think it matters to the audience? Do you think TV audiences care when they're watching a great TV show? Do they care that it's from Israel? Does it make a difference with something like, you know, Fowder? Yes, obviously, it's about the Israel-Palestine conflict. But something like Butty Paul in Treatment or some of the other shows that are kind of family shows or human shows, emotional shows. Oh. Does the audience care that it's from Israel? You know, I think when the material, you know, there's an old adage, which is the virtue of truth. If it's not on the page, it's not going to be there. And if it is on the page, it'll be clear. And if something is beautifully written and the story is beautifully crafted, I would make an argument to you because I watched Fauda both with subtitles and I watched it dubbed. And and losing Alice, um, you know, uh, same thing with with my new friends uh, at Alpha Bus, which is which is fantastic, and I have to tell you, I think the verisimilitude established in its original language has a certain power to it, and when you dub it, I think it traduces uh, upon the authenticity. But my hunch would be, if you sat down with people um, at the streamers and you said, how, "How does this great show do in its original?" Look at look at look at Borgen. Um, which was, you know, a Danish show, you know, stunningly good. And I think if you dub it, you know, it, it takes some, it takes some of the, uh, some of the purity away. So I, the answer to your question, long-windedly, is no. I do not think people have a problem with it. I think there might be a small number of people who do. But you get into a great story, you're into a great story, and you're home. You know, first of all, I'm getting to realize that you watch more Israeli TV than I do, and I'm on Israeli TV, so that's saying something. I but watch a um, lot of <laughs> you guys have, you guys, you know, the plethora of talent inside your small country, with only, by the way, you know, I remember when I was at HBO and we would do our business deals with um, your your distributors, and it's so, you know, there's never, there wasn't a tremendous amount of revenue coming out of the thing. Here's what there was, though, a tremendous amount of IP, a tremendous amount of extraordinary talent, which punches above its weight for reasons that I think uh, are, are obvious. You have a lot no, of, let's get into you know, the reasons. I, 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 yeah. I want to hear the reasons. Yeah, what's Why what's, do what's you the think? secret sauce? What is yeah. the secret sauce? And what, and what well, is, because you're right, it's such a small country. What is going on in that tiny country to produce yeah. these stories that have gone around the world? Yeah, well, it's interesting. You could ask that of your uh, of the Technion, right? You could ask that of your AI industry. You could ask that of your uh, the superlative nature of your Air Force. You you could look at all the different dimensions of science, literature, art, and say, how does this tiny country? Are we at nine million? Nine million? Do I have a that, little that? bit? A little bit more. A little bit more. Yeah. A little bit more now. You know, 9 million people produce this disproportionate amount of extraordinary science and art and culture. It's a, it's a conversation for another day, but it's axiomatic, isn't it? It is evident for everybody to see. There it is. All, all, all this extraordinary work um, coming out of this tiny place, including novelists, of course. But, you know, the interesting thing is when you think of how many sort of anti-Israel voices you're hearing around the world... Um, even increasingly in the United States, even trickling into the mainstream, and then yeah. see how Israeli television is so popular. I mean, what, are we yeah. better at explaining ourselves in drama well, than we are that, at explaining ourselves you know, on the news? You know, that's a very 
That's a very uh, important question because one of the things, let's talk about our voice for a moment, which was one of my last projects uh, when I was at, at HBO that, and I'm so proud of that project. When I read the first script and, and, and Joe Cedar and, and, and the team and the extraordinary breadth of talent that, that was behind it, I remember saying to myself, the art of getting this right in this story is the microcosm of the heartbreak and the tragedy of this conflict in so many different dimensions. But, but it is honest and it shows the humanity and the pathos of both sides. And if we can thread the needle, I remember saying in the, in the first conversation, we'll have something special. And of course, you have the master, you have a guy, you have Joe, you have this extraordinary theme. And I remember I watched it two times in succession and it broke my heart. And I thought every, this is what I thought, every American high school senior, every European high school senior, every Israeli and Palestinian high school senior should watch this show because there is so much in it about the tragedy itself, the pathos of this story, that I think everyone would hear things in an emotional way that they could not get on the news or from reading a newspaper. And I think there's an enormous amount in that show that shows us why we need to figure out a way to bring a common peace to, to the neighborhood. When you put that point there, together with the other shows that people, audiences in America and around the world are watching, what effect do you think it's having on how people outside Israel see the country? Once they've sat with Fowder and yeah. Our Boys and Stiesel, my own personal yeah. favourite, I'd love to hear what yours is, but what yeah. effect does it have on how people view this country, do you think? Look, it's impossible to say no one thing as you both as students of culture and as journalists and as storytellers know, no one thing is ever going to to change the debate, if you will. But over time, the, the accumulated messaging of storytelling, which talks about common humanity, which, you know, Tehran, for example, um, which, which uh, Ron did and which, um, which Apple uh, bought. One of the things that I actually was so touched by, moved by in the crafting of that piece was it, it humanized the Iranian intelligence officer, his marriage, his family. It didn't turn him into an angel. It didn't turn the Iranians uh, into, uh, into angels, but it made clear in all of its layers that there was complexity to the human condition and to where people find themselves when they're in these uh, in these jobs. So I think it will never, it will not be Jonathan one thing that reshapes the gestalt of popular culture around the world. But over time, I believe profoundly that the storytellers, uh, the artists, the musicians, the writers of movies and TV will have a tremendous role to play, God willing, as we move forward in this increasingly toxic environment of misinformation and disinformation and tribalism. Our best way out of this is yes, we need better politics all over the place, but my goodness, alongside of it, 
we need the storytellers and the artists to help us listen and see other perspectives and points of view. You nearly gave us an alternative name for the show, Oi Gestalt. <laughs> that was my alternative name for the for the podcast. Um, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. It'll sell. Um, I have to take us back six years. Uh, you were receiving an honorary degree from your alma mater, uh, Franklin ah. Marshall College. You gave a speech there, uh, and you talk about how your career at HBO actually started in yep. relation to Israel and a very interesting encounter in a yep. Chinese restaurant in New York that led to your first doc- documentary. Do you want to tell us a little bit? Can you retell that story? Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to. It's it's really for me. It is a profound story. It's it's uh, the brilliant writer and uh, auteur David Milch. And one time he said to me, "Coincidence is just God's way of remaining anonymous." And uh, and and I love that. So my my story that I'm about to tell you has to be touched by God because there's no other way this could have happened. So I was 26. Uh, I had just started my own little uh, company, which consisted of me. Um, (laughs) And I called it as you can only do when you're 26 and have no money and no position and frankly, no business starting a company. I called it RLP International. Um, (laughs) Why why not? And the card said, and this is relevant to my story, Richard L. Plepler, chairman, RLP International. And the whole company was the chairman and whatever ideas the chairman could come up with. So it was the beginning of the Intifada, uh, 1987. And I was struck by the way in which a reductive kind of story was being told on American television. It was David Goliath. It was Guns versus Stones. And there was, particularly in 87, I knew a much more complicated story to tell. And I believe that you could tell that story authentically with with real journalistic uh, bona fides and give context to what was happening. But of course, I had no money and I had no position and it it didn't look like I was going to be able to get this done. And so I was having dinner at a Chinese restaurant in New York, which no longer exists, called Fortune Garden. And I looked across the uh, restaurant and there sat the then Israeli ambassador, uh, Mr. Bibi Netanyahu, with his uh, then wife. And I marched over to him and I said, uh, Mr. Ambassador, my name is Richard Plepler. I'm the chairman uh, of RLP International and I have an idea for you. And he said, what's that? And I said, you need to make or we, I need to make a documentary film which contextualizes the complexity of the Intifada for an American audience and a global audience. And if you don't do that, all the spin in the world, including you, and you remember how effective in those years he was as the ambassador in American television, American audience, it won't matter because no one will understand the story. And he looked at me and he said, who are you again? And, and I said, you know, I'm, I'm Richard Plepler and here's my car. And I gave him my card, which said what I just said, to you, chairman of RLP uh, International. And I cannot tell either of you why God was sitting on my shoulder at this moment, but uh, the then ambassador turned to me and said, come see me. And I did. And he introduced me to uh, Uri Sabir, who became, as you both know, one of the architects of Oslo. Uri was ex- extremely uh, generous in taking me seriously and introduced me to a range of different people. And from there, 
I went and made this film, went on public television and um, got very respectable reviews. And I think told an honest story very tragically. And sadly, I would tell you, if you watched it again today, you would say, wow, uh, a lot has sadly stayed the same. But that's so the you, story. So, and that led you to HBO, right? I mean, that got the it attention did. of the it, then it CEO. Kind of, it, it, um, Michael Fuchs, who, who hired me at HBO, who was the uh, um, kind of uh, one of the earliest CEOs and deserves enormous credit for introducing really the idea of original programming on HBO back in the late 80s and uh, early 90s when this was unheard of that people would pay for television and that you could do shows that and compete with the networks. It was, it was considered Looney Tunes that that was a possibility. And Michael had the chutzpah and Michael saw the show and he was very supportive of, of my career. And he said to me, you got to come over here. The, the only thing that troubles me about this story, Richard, is that through this story, you're telling us that the Almighty works through the hand of Benjamin Netanyahu. <laughs> well, the I, think, I actually prefer, Jonathan, in my spirit and my heart, that he works through my, my late father, who loved Israel and who taught me so much uh, about history and about Israel. My grandfather, who was born in Jerusalem on my mother's side, um, so I have some Sabra in me, and um, I think that between my grandfather, my father was with me that night, my father was the one who said to me, there's Netanyahu, go see, go talk to him. And I marched over there and, and did. So let's, let's give my, my papa and, and, and my dad uh, the, the credit for, for God's hand. Your, your, your father in the state of Israel. Is it? Yeah. I think that's, that's shared credit. Yeah. Good combination. Um, you know, we're talking about Israeli television, but but in general, I mean, there really is so much television right now. I mean, billions of yeah. dollars being poured into television productions. It's like it's called peak TV. I guess what I'm trying to ask is, is there too much content and where where do we think television is going? Maybe this is a cliche of a question, but where is this all heading? Yeah, look, um, I, I always say to my uh, my friends who are running the services, including my 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 former colleagues uh, at HBO, who are are fabulous, and, and the folks at Apple are fabulous. There's talent everywhere: Netflix, Amazon, Disney, everywhere. Um, Hulu. The degree of difficulty being in those jobs versus the degree of difficulty, even when I left just two years ago, this month, is exponentially harder. Because let's take something like in treatment. Or just for purposes of fun, take something like, uh, like Fauda. In Treatment was able to break through in popular culture to enjoy a unique place in the media to be written about and talked about and elevated in the elite opinion leader circles that made it a hit. To do that now, I think that it is really difficult to break through because just look at your own lives. You guys are students of culture. You are alert and engaged citizens. You read widely. You want to know what the best films are and what the best TV shows are, just like I do. And think about how many dinners you're at or how many conversations you engage in where somebody says to you, did you see X? And you say to them, 
No, I didn't. Uh, where, where is that? I said, well, that's on Apple or that's on Netflix or that's on HBO Max or whatever it is. It's very difficult to break through in what James Panawozik, the brilliant uh, television critic of the New York Times, calls a cosmic shower of content. And it is a cosmic shower. So, so I think the, the answer to your question, again, long-windedly, I think the jury is out on where this is going to all land. Richard, our time is very nearly up, and I want to ask you a very difficult question because I know how much you passion you have for all this. But of the Israeli shows we've been talking about, I think I mentioned what my personal favorite is, but I want yeah. to know which of all the shows, as viewer as well as you know, producer, which is your personal favorite? Which one do you think is the best? So, Jonathan, uh, I don't mean to uh, evade your question, but when I was running HBO, everybody would always you ask will. Everybody, <laughs> I will. It's the same reason when I was running HBO, I would never say what my favorite HBO show was. I think that there's been so much quality. I think that's the operative point. Best is a favorite is a, you know, I loved Tehran. Um, I, I ate it up. Uh, I loved Stitzel. I loved Unorthodox. I loved Our Boys. I loved Fauda, um, which I watched uh, like, like a lunatic. By the way, I'm not embarrassed to say I also love The Beauty and the Baker, uh, which I want. <laughs> and I am waiting for the coda, which I understand needs to be subtitled. Uh, you watch with, it, you watch the Hebrew series. You mean Leotita yeah, in, in, with oh, subtitles? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I loved okay. it. And and uh, you know, I know, you know, it's not as serious a show as Fauda or in treatment, but I thought it was charming and I thought the talent in it was fantastic. So we got we got the headline on that. Jonathan tried and tried, but you you admitted to that. That's good. Well, I'm just saying that's that's yet another one uh, <laughs> of my delights. I think in, so, in, Richard. In, it's been really television, John. Talking of delights, it's been a delight talking with you. Thanks so much for coming on Unholy. It was it's a, a pleasure. great pleasure. I'm a fan of both of yours. Thank you so much, Richard. Thank you both very much. So, wow, the man is a force of nature. That was just amazing to hear all about that and very encouraging, actually, about the future of TV and, and, and you know, the country you're in, you're neat. What a powerhouse it is of creative talent. And Indeed, story. although I could not, not listen to him and think the future of television does not include people making their salary from uh, turning to commercial breaks. That was prob will probably not be with us for a long time. So any of us in commercial television should probably worry. But except that, I mean, besides that, we I think we learned a lot. And We uh, did. I think there was one moment where he described us both the storytellers. And I know that I was sitting there thinking, you know, I write these newspaper columns, you're telling people the news. It's not quite storytellers in the sort of George R. R. Martin sense of the word, which is what he's going by for. By the way, uh, you know, news in Israel sometimes does look like that, I'm just saying. But yeah, I mean, in general, probably you're right. Yeah, no, that was huge. Well, uh, we are in the business of handing out awards. We could really give Richard Plepler a Mensch of the Week award just for being on Unholy. But we're going to get to Mensch in a minute. First, we have to do Chutzpah. And who is your nominee, Yoni? Oh, well, I nominate member of Knesset Miki Zohar of the Likud, former head of coalition, now the opposition whip. The honorable gentleman arrived late to the committee meeting at the Knesset and didn't like the fact that the chairwoman ignored him because he was late. And he told her, Edith Silman, he said to her, respond to me like a good girl, end quote. By the way, oh if you God. must know, the meeting started at 8.30, so hard knock life in the opposition. Um, but Miki Zohar later apologized. I'll just say it's not the first time he 
he's made nasty comments at women in the Knesset, the last female member of Knesset that he spoke to similarly is now Minister of Education, Ifat Shasha Bitton. So maybe both chutzpah and karma uh, from, uh, from <laughs> Miki Zohar. Well, it's funny because my uh, suggestion is also a parliamentarian, although all the way across the Atlantic in Washington, D.C. Uh, Ilhan Omar has often, frankly, been on the receiving end of that kind of sexism, also her fair share of racial prejudice directed in, in her direction. But this time, I'm afraid she was the dispenser of chutzpah because she was asked on um, CNN about those uh, Jewish colleagues who'd been criticising uh, some of her positions and her recent comments. And she sort of made, you know, took a problem and made it much worse because uh, Jake Tapper, formerly of Unholy, a former <laughs> guest on this show, asked her about the fact that Jewish colleagues have particularly criticised Ilhan Omar partly for what she'd been saying about Israel-Palestine and Gaza. And she replied saying they haven't been partners in justice. They haven't been equally engaged or engaging in seeking justice around the world. And you look through the list of people she was talking about, and you know two of them are uh, military veterans, people who have worn uh, America's uniform. One is a pediatrician and longtime advocate for children's health. Another one has been hugely involved whole career in philanthropy. Another, Jerry, Gerald Nadler, uh, shepherd in major civil rights legislation through Congress. But yet with one sweeping remark, she has said all of those people are, they're not like me. Uh, they're not engaged in the pursuit of justice. And actually, you look, disagree with them all you like, but it is a chutzpah to say that those people, just because they disagree with you, are not in the business of seeking justice. Agreed. So good. So we have that wrapped so, up. <laughs> we just have the mention word to give out. I think well, you should go I with thought, that. Um, I'm going to go first because staying with the United States, we have people around the world I know have been paying attention to this tragic story of the uh, building that collapsed in the uh, Florida community of Surfside. And the death toll there is stands at around 16, and I think many people are still missing. It is a great tragedy. The neighbourhood is uh, very largely Jewish among other communities who are there. There's lots of communities there, but there is a very large Jewish presence in Surfside. And the mensch uh, of the week award goes really to the collective effort that has been launched by a whole lot of people from different uh, Jewish organisations, philanthropic organisations, who have descended on Surfside with blankets and clothing and medicine and food for really for a, you know a building that uh, is now just rubble and the number of people who've been made homeless this was a collective effort um, by Jewish charities who did distinguish themselves by um, you know really jumping in and coming together to bring aid to Surfside so I think that collective mention award goes to them I have uh, I, I agree with you I'm just going to sub Bring in another Mensch nominee who uh, this week is 95 years old. This is Mel Brooks. I'm not sure Mensch begins to describe him. Uh, still far away from the 2,000-year-old man, which is, of course, the legendary love, uh, skit love with him, uh, him of Mel Brooks and Carl Reiner. Look, I mean, this is the man who's given us some of the funniest movies ever made. Uh, some of them glorious. Some of them are just... What is your favorite Mel Brooks movie? I think we should have asked this at the beginning of the... Oh, well, wow, so many. Um, I could, well, The Producers. Um, the Producers, By, uh, by Country Mile. Um, I love The Producers. I love The Zero Mostel. <laughs> I just love that. One of my favorite Mel Brooks bits, though, is actually not that so well-known, but he's done it live. And I saw him. He did a show when he was 88 in wow. London, which I wow. saw. And he did one of my favorite things, which is a 
song, the Cowards song, um, for uh, for cowards in military service, and it goes, retreat, retreat, <laughs> think with your feet, retreat. And Mel Brooks did that live uh, age 88, retreat, retreat, oh. think with your feet. Um, I'm a, just a huge Mel Brooks fan, and, and- you know... It, how happy birthday to you. We him. got you to sing. I can't believe it. Um, but yeah, I would agree <laughs> pr- the producers. I mean, come on. Two obvious Jews, although that nev- that word never appears in the movie, we should say, who put on a musical about Adolf Hitler hoping to lose money. I mean, producers, probably the most Jewish movie ever made. I would probably say History of the World as well. Uh, Spaceballs, Lior, our executive producer, his favorite film is Spaceballs. A Druish princess, funny. She doesn't look Druish. Or that was for you. Um, you know, just so many, so many uh, great ones. I'm still waiting, Mel, by the way, if you're listening to the podcast for your History of the World Part 2, which you promised, remember, Jews yes. in Space, etc. Just the teaser, never the film. You know, just the greatest, um, greatest mensch. And so Maybe we say we'll, mer- we'll, to him. We'll connect him. We'll connect him with Richard Plepler. They can do some six-season <laughs> deal uh, for 95-year-old Mel Brooks. Um, if you have enjoyed listening to him and listening to us, uh, do recommend us to your friends. Remember, five-star reviews are especially welcome. We've been getting quite a few of those, so that's good. Um, and uh, Ping and Two Jews on the news. On Instagram, we're just two, at Two Jews. Right. On Instagram, letters. we're just Two Jews. We're just two Jews. Uh, basically, let's face it, you're on it. We're just two Jews everywhere, not oh just my God. Instagram. You're Jewish? I'm shocked. Um, we should we should pause for a moment and say, Jonathan, that you will be taking ah. a hiatus. Um, yes, a little for, pause for July. That's right true. Uh, for July. Um, I. But by the way, I'm I'm still going to call you every week and yammer just because I'm used to it. So I mean, that's just what's going to happen. That'll be um, fun. Maybe other people are not allowed to listen in. No, just a little pause. I have some other tasks to hand. But yes, we will be back after that little summer recess. And then I think you're going to be having conversation with a couple of special guests too. And then we will be fully back. But we have some people to thank even before we get there. Yes, uh, Lior Friedman, our executive producer, and Rom Atik, uh, Omer Primat, and Irad Eshel for original music. And we will miss you, Jonathan. So come back. Oh, you said you. you'll come Hold back in August. Fort. I'll try. I will hold the fort. Be well, Yonit. See you soon. <laughs> See you soon.